0: You're listening to Culture and Christianity, a podcast of In-Town Community Church. You will find in the description for this episode links to handouts and resources that are mentioned during this episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. It's so good to see you all. Hey, so I have a hypothetical for you to talk about with your friends, among, at your tables So, this week, I was on vacation, but my beautiful son, Jonathan, stole a cookie from the snack bag at vacation. So the conversation I want you all to have, by the way, context, my son, Jonathan, is four years old. Uh, Some of you know him. If you don't, come work at the nursery. It's beautiful. Um, But your conversation at your tables is this, when was my son a sinner? All right, everybody, thanks so much for either loving or, you know, condemning my son Jonathan forever. Uh, No, thanks so much for the conversation. We're going to go ahead and get started. Let me pray for us, and we will go ahead and get started this morning. King Jesus, we come to you again, and we ask for A reminder of the great mercy and grace that you have had on us, that you see us as your treasured possession, your word says, not because of the works that we have done or the sins that we have avoided, but solely because of your great love and mercy. So we ask that we would carry that spirit with us as well as we move again into good and hard and good conversation we love you and we pray this in your name amen well thank you all so much again for being here um if you don't know me uh, this is your first week my name is steve yates i am one of the pastors here um if you're walking in and you are a, a new person, totally find a seat in the back. If I know you and or have babysat your kids, I'll force you to here sit up front. Um, we're talking about trans and the gospel, transgenderism. We spent a week talking about definitions our first week, if you weren't with us. That week we... Outlined why we use some of the language that we're using. And so if you weren't here for that week, please find that audio file on our website or on the newsletter and download that, listen to it, especially if you have any questions about why I'm using some of the language that I'm using. We also talked about gender and tried to define it. And we talked about gender in kind of two forms or categories. We talked about it from the standpoint of Genesis 1 and 2. And we said that we do believe that the biblical record shows only two genders. That is the position of in town community church, it's the position of our denomination and many thereof. It is my position. And at the same time, we also talked about gender as a cultural construct, as the idea, or at least of the presentation. Of gender as a cultural construct, which means instead of only having sort of a John Wayne versus Barbie sense of what a man and a woman is, the perspective scripture gives us is a question of whether or not people are leaning into the image of God inside of them. And as we see in the Old Testament, the the reality this again of course is not a question that scripture spends a lot of time the idea of trans um, developing that what we do have from the old testament especially nonetheless is is something that that seeks to move us to clarity we see prohibitions against various forms of cross dressing or uh, homosexuality or other things in the old testament not as a um Not necessarily as a weapon, but rather as an ability to mark, to have boundary around something sacred, which was the people of God. As if to say, we as the people of God are going to act a certain way. And that means that we are not going to act like these other people who are not a part of the people of God. And that includes not adopting some of their practices. Why? Because many of those practices aren't leaning into the image of God. They aren't bringing clarity to that idea of the image of God. So that's sort of a principle that we've lifted out, not to say that you know, this one verse or that one verse is sort of the, the linchpin verse that sticks it to the person who is a pro Trans, X, Y, you know, t- type of argument. No, but it is a principle that we're trying to kind of lift out of that. But again, we said that one of our great sins as modern Westerners, as often Christians as well, especially as those have a relationship with each other, is that we have sometimes convoluted gender norms of presentation or even gendered stereotypes for this idea of two genders. And we need to sometimes, I think, have a wider vision for what a man of God and what a woman of God can be, rather than pushing all of these things to the same polarized positions. Week two, we started looking at three lenses. And that's what we're doing for the rest of this time. We looked at lens one last week, lens two this week, and lens three next week. And these three lenses are three different ways of looking at trans issues. And one of the reasons that we're doing this is because we talked about how easy it is to often be talking with someone else about some of these issues And what ends up happening is you're talking past one another. You're talking past one another because you are assuming things about the conversation. The other person is also assuming things about the conversation. And you are not actually assuming the same things. You're using language in different ways. You're assuming different values. You're assuming different positions of what is good, bad, right, wrong, acceptable, not acceptable. And I think a lot of the confusion and even visceralness in our culture between Christians and non-Christians between Christians between anybody who is you know uh, having conversation about these issues is in fact a lack of either having the same lens or at least understanding the other person's perspective that does not mean we're saying that the other person's perspective whatever it is is correct or not but there is a level of empathy and of understanding and respect that we realize that we need to bring to bear and that includes analyzing and understanding our own emotions in this our own emotions individually but also our collective emotions as the people of god that we really are still culturally experiencing a sense of whiplash from how quickly sort of a Christendom culture here, especially in the United States, has shifted to a very, very different kind of culture, almost a different central religion, a, simple, a different central position. And we have not experienced that whiplash well. And often our response to that has been one of fear and one of anxiety expressed through anger rather than simply sadness and moving that sadness to a place of longing for Jesus and longing for his kingdom to come. So that was week two. This is week three. And this week, we're going to look at the lens of Divinity. Now, what do I mean by divinity? Well, you know, I grew up Baptist, so any good Baptist is going to have an alliteration. So, of course, I renamed these to all start with D. Um, Can't get away from your roots sometimes. Um, What do I mean by divinity? Here's what I mean divinity, the idea of valuing as a primary value what is sacred, what is honorable, what is holy. The Bible is very, very concerned with these things. I mentioned earlier that a lot of the Old Testament, things that we could see as at least parallel to issues of transgenderism, dealt with the idea of kind of setting Israel apart. Well, there are lots of things that really seem to be very amoral, neutral laws as well in the Old Testament that also were used to set things apart. If this morning, for instance, you enjoyed bacon, or perhaps yesterday a wonderful grilled ham and cheese sandwich, both of these things would have been very much against some Old Testament law. In the same way, I'm not going to ask you or your neighbor to do this, because it would be awkward, but I bet most of us here are ceremonially unclean due to the makeup of the fabric that we are wearing. Now, I do not mean to belittle or kind of minimize the Old Testament law. These were real things. Now, we don't have time to go into a full explanation of what elements of the law in the Old Testament are still with us today and what elements are necessarily not, but the, the concept of the people of God being set apart, being different, from the rest of the world is definitely something that's held onto into the New Testament. As a result, it is a perfectly valid question for us to ask whether trans or transgenderism is a sin. And also, it's a very dangerous question. Here's what I mean let's break it down for a second, let's break down this question. So, if I'm thinking about this question here, is trans a sin? As you see on your handout, I'm looking at first this word, trans. And if you remember, at week one, we defined trans and transgenderism as any experience someone has of what we called gender incongruence. Or a more severe form or synonymous form, depending on who you're talking to, gender dysphoria. A sense of offness, a sense of discontinuity between one's sense of self and one's biological sex. But with that definition alone, I'm left with wondering what am I talking about here? Am I talking about a feeling someone's having? Am I talking about a biological difference someone has? Am I talking about a specific action? Am I talking about a a transition? Am I talking about a person's position on this? What am I talking about here? I don't know. (coughs) And because of that, it muddies this question a lot. Secondly, I'm also looking at this word, sin. And I also want to acknowledge this. While I do not want to say in the same way that sin is muddied, in the same way that I'm saying this word trans is muddied, even with the idea of sin, Scripture, and our confessions as Presbyterians both present to us a more multifaceted view of sin than we like to admit. So, Any answers for when I asked you all why, um, when my son Jonathan was a sinner after stealing that cookie from the snack bag on our vacation? Anybody want to give an idea for when he was a sinner? At birth. At birth. Oh, you get the gold star. (laughs) Perhaps even before that. Yes. When else? When he was conceived. Okay. When else? Was it when he was hungry? When he, was it when he salivated after that cookie that he saw in the bag? Was it when he grabbed for it? Was it when it took him a while to open the bag because he's still four and that clumsy? Was it when he took the first bite? How about the last bite? How about when he wiped the chocolate off so he was kind of trying to hide his face, his crime, just a little bit? What about when he tried to give his sisters also cookies? (laughs) You know, we, we laugh about this, but the reason I am, I'm getting at this is because, again, we have actually a very multifaceted picture of sin in Scripture. Scripture talks about sin both in the idea of actual actions or transgressions, things we do or things we have left undone, as the famous liturgy often goes, but also States of being. We are sinful people. We are corrupted. Scripture actually even goes further and talks about this in our relationships. If you look at the diagram I have on your handout here, what I have first at the very, very top is actually the Greek letter theta. It is common... Um, shorthand for God, often in kind of theological textbooks. It's so that, you know, I'm not either just writing the word God there or drawing some blasphemous, horrible picture. That would be wrong. Um, So I have God here on the top. And then there to the eastern point, I have a group of people sitting or standing, high-fiving each other. At the bottom, I have some beautiful mountains and trees. And then to the west, I have kind of heart, mind, body, just sort of this totality of who we are as people. I also have a dotted line between God and everything else, including that stick figure in the middle. As we understand it, In Genesis 3, when we sinned against God, when Adam and Eve first sinned against God, what that sin did was to pollute all of creation. Which means it did two very, very specific things. Everything under that line was corrupted along with us. Now we don't necessarily think about the plants in our garden as corrupted unless, you know, you're a bad gardener, but think about this. This is Romans chapter 8. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Everything under the line feels sin. The other thing that's broken is our relationships, which means Even the relationship, if I were to draw sort of an arrow here up to God, an arrow over to the east to this other group of people, down to creation and right to ourselves, all four of those relationships are also broken. God is not corrupted like everything else is below the line, but even our relationship with God is affected by our sin. Why is this such a big deal with this question? Well, when I think about the question of is trans a sin or not, beyond the question of kind of what do I mean by trans here, how much is enough, unhelpful questions like that, one of the things that I'm thinking about is whether or not gender incongruence or gender dysphoria is biological or not, right? If it is, and I'm going to say something controversial here, so please don't take me out of context or tweet this. Is it different than someone being born blind? Now, Jesus says in Matthew, when the disciples ask him, when they see a blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that God has cursed him with this blindness, Jesus sidesteps the question. He doesn't actually say, nobody sinned, it just happened. For him, it didn't matter. This man was blind so that God may be glorified. I believe, regardless of some of the different Elements of what perhaps brings about gender incongruence, which, as studies have shown, may or may not have a biological component, may or may not have a social component, may or may not have a conscious component as opposed to an unconscious one. I will be honest with you all. It is not that I do not care, but however those conversations happen, we actually have theological room to be okay with those conversations. Why? Because if transgenderism has a biological component, I believe that creation, including my body, has experienced corruption. I'm broken. If it is social, I believe that my mind and my relationships are both broken. I have a category for this. So I bring that up as we ask this question, is trans a sin or not? Because it's very, very easy to start getting into the woods of... If trans is a sin and if I, especially if I make sin a choice or a choice of an identity, if I start whittling it down, then it must be a sin based on the fact that someone chose to be this way. Now, I'm also not saying someone didn't make a choice to perhaps experience this in a certain way. I am simply saying that regardless our theological framework as Christians has room for this conversation because we believe that all of us, though made in the image of God, have broken relationships with others, with creation, and with ourselves, which includes our bodies, our minds, our feelings, our experiences, all of these things. So is trans a sinner or not? The other thing I want to say, and I put this in kind of a little tiny type, but it's it's helpful to think about this. Why does it matter? Why are we asking this question? Again, I did say scripture is very concerned with the idea of what things are holy and what things are not. What things are sacred and what things are not. It is completely appropriate for Christians, for the Christian church, for us individually, to consider and weigh whether or not things are honoring and glorifying to God. It is okay for us to do this. This is not a wrong question to ask. However, it is incredibly easy to weaponize this question. So I do believe in our own souls we need to wrestle with, why are we asking this question? And the reason I say this is because when I look at the New Testament, when I see Jesus seeing religious people wrestling with these questions, there's a pattern. Almost always the religious people are dealing with questions of what is holy and what is unholy to justify themselves before God and to set themselves apart in positive ways before God and thus to look down on everyone else. I, I, I see, I, I have brothers and sisters who, um, and I call them brothers and sisters in Christ because I believe their professions of faith are, um, are real who I deeply, deeply differ with on these issues. And it, it saddens me because it's actually broken some friendships personally in my own life on LGBTQ and trans issues. And, but when I talk to them about this, while, while, while they often will, they will combine the idea of Jesus Looking down on the religious people saying things like take the log out of your own eye first or he who is without sin cast the first stone to saying something like Jesus sided with the outcast Jesus sided with and thus was for and affirmed the other. And I can't go that far. I do see often in scripture. This beautiful picture of Jesus being able to show the religious people their own outsider status. This is Jesus meeting with Nicodemus under cover of nightfall because Nicodemus is so afraid of being seen to talk with Jesus. And later, Nicodemus helps pull Jesus' body off the cross and bury him. We have to ask ourselves, why are we asking this question, and what are we going to do with it? Now, I want to transition for the rest of our time and address something that I think comes parallel to this. It's a little bit of us changing gears, but it's an incredibly practical, probably the question I get most after, is trans a sin or not, as a pastor, is the question of pronouns. And I understand why. Because for many people within our society, one of the, I don't belittle it to say easiest, but perhaps uh, most accessible ways of changing one's gender presentation is to adopt a set of alternate pronouns to go, perhaps, if one was a biological male and was presenting as a male and is going to experience uh, gender incongruity in some way and be trans, they uh, perhaps are going to start going by she. Um, Perhaps they'll start going by they. Uh, There are also alternate spellings that uh, adopt even other uh, understandings of gender, perhaps third genders, or non-binary people who do not adopt any um, presented gender whatsoever or whatnot. And so there's you know, perhaps one of the ways you might move into this space personally and be faced with this is the question of whether or not in a relationship or even just in a, a, a workplace thing or even just meeting someone, if you're faced with, am I going to go along with this person's preferred pronouns or not? You may see this in a corporate world. You may see it um, in someone's bio. And after their bio, you may see a set of pronouns there that says, hey, in this organization, the assumption is that people are going to use said pronouns or not. So it's an important question for us to ask. It's something that I don't want to make light of. At the same time... As with many of these things, I'm not sure there's a single answer. There are very passionate Orthodox Christians on both sides of these. And you see both of these sides represented sort of in this matrix here on the back of your handout. Would Jesus use, and I said my pronouns, but would Jesus use a person who is, who is trans preferred pronouns? Yes, some feel that pronouns are personal and they're a linguistic choice, that I'm just describing myself in a certain way and and using them is an act of respect towards that individual. Rather than a description of that individual's current biological state, it is just a description of that person's um, preferred state as they are right now. Um, And I don't mean this to say light of it, but, you know, a... An illustration might be, you know, my kids love playing dress-up all the time. And if someone, one of my kids is going to be, you know, a space alien that shoots lasers out of their eyes or something like that, I might address them a certain way that is not actually my son. I'm not going to call this person Judah. I'm going to call them Blorp or, you know, something like that. Um, I might describe a certain thing or whatnot. I, again, I don't mean to make light of that and say this is a game or just a costume at all, but there is that sense of not playing along, but entering into a, an understanding with an individual. And, and people who adopt this position can embrace that. At the same time, many also would say, no, it's impossible for me to use someone's preferred pronouns because in doing so they are asking me to enter into an understanding that I disagree with based on my understanding of the things that we've been talking about here. And so if someone is, is, has preferred pronouns and these, prefer, these preferred pronouns are not their biological sex my use of them is to not seen as Meeting them where they are, it's seen as an affirmation of their belief or an affirmation of their presentation. That I'm saying this is okay, and perhaps as a Christian, I'm also by proxy saying God is saying this is okay, and so on and so forth. The hard thing is because we live in a very polarizing society, people who disagree on this issue, we don't always do it well. In fact, we sometimes do it very, very poorly. And I can understand why. Those who adopt a position of saying, yes, this is something that Christians should do. We should use people's pronouns because we want relationship with people. They're desperately afraid of shutting down the conversation. Because if I refuse to use someone's pronoun that they have expressly said that they are to be known by... It's kind of like I am bringing the issue up right away. You know, I mean, I mean for instance, okay, an issue that, that it's easy for Christians to differ on um, in Scripture historically has been the issue of alcohol and alcohol use, right? But if I'm sitting down at my Thanksgiving table and I have a bottle of wine and I serve that bottle of wine and I've invited uh, one of the teetotalers here in the room to join my family for Um, dinner and I offer that um, that bottle of wine they could say you know respectfully no I'm okay or or I could have something else or they could say pastor how dare you and they could storm off you see there's this sense of that action ripping to the forefront the question. And I think those who adopt a position of these pronouns being okay and acceptable to use partially do so out of the respect for another individual and the belief that if that issue is just brought up too early without relational capital, it shuts down any sense of conversation. At the same time, I also understand Many who are not comfortable using alternate pronouns, they do understand that the world is watching us and that there's a perception of, of when is the question going to be raised and should the question be raised. All of these questions kind of pop up. I think those who might espouse that position because of the cultural wins we have might also have a deep fear if they see an organization or the leaders of that organization beginning to adopt the alternate position. And suddenly there could be that sense of, again, fear and anxiety about loss. Am I going to have to leave? If I hear Jimmy, and I have no idea what Jimmy's position on this is why I'm picking on him, but if I, if I hear Jimmy use an alternate pronoun with an individual And I disagree with Jimmy on that issue. Am I starting to work out? I'm going to have to leave my church. You know, I don't trust my pastor anymore. Or I see my boss doing that. Am I going to lose my job? Is there going to be a policy at some point? There's there's real anxiety again there, and I can understand that. Now, as we've talked about, the New Testament does not clearly bring up the issue of trans or transgenderism. And because of that, there's not a one-to-one correlation between the situation that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 8 that we're about to talk about and the issue of pronouns. But I believe there's wisdom in it. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses an issue in the church at Corinth that we might think of as very, very weird but is actually palpably real to these people. You see, in Corinth and in much of Greco-Roman society, people were polytheistic. They believed in many, many different gods and goddesses and spirits of all different shapes and sizes and power levels and whatnot. And they would sacrifice things to them. In fact, if you think about how many idols there were, You can imagine the types of sacrifices that might be given. You might have a household idol or a couple of household gods. And then on your way to the grocery store, you are also going to stop by the temple uh, for fertility because you want to have a baby. And you also know that your husband is off at war. So you stop by and you pray for war. And then there's always the emperor and he's always changing. And somehow he's always a god, even though whether he's doing a good job or not, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, that's a lot of food. I mean, there are not cows on enough hills to make said sacrifices and everything's going to stink with all of that rotting meat. Unless your spiritual position, your religious position, is that the gods spiritually consume that food. But after they spiritually consume it, It's totally okay for you to eat it. Then you have your cake and you eat it too, right? Like it's served a dual purpose. It's awesome. In the same way, what what Paul speaks to the church at Corinth about is this struggle then that some Christians had at Corinth with a practice that was very, very common in the Greco world of people selling that food that had been sacrificed to idols. Again, it's good it's food. Nothing has happened to it. I mean, at worst, we're talking about the clearance section at Publix, that bright orange sticker that if you're going to make steaks today, you're really, really excited about because it means you don't have to freeze them, right? Like, this is a good thing for some people. Cheaper meat. Other people are horrified by this. How on earth could you eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol? How on earth could you eat food that, that is demonic? I mean, I mean these, are, these are real struggles that people are having. And Christians are struggling because what happens if I invite Jay and Suzanne over to my house for dinner and then I put this awesome steak in front of them and Jay is, eating, you know, he's, a, he's already taken a bite And suddenly he finds out that this is where I got the meat. I mean, friendships were broken over this. It's a big deal. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8 are kind of a both hand, aren't they? He says, on one hand, the people who are eating the meat are right. There are no gods and goddesses. Nothing's happened to that meat other than a couple flies landing on it. As a result, it's totally okay for you to eat. In fact, God made that cow. God made that meat. I hope it tastes good. On the other hand, Paul also says your, your brother matters too. Your sister matters too. And if, you have a, if someone has a, a, a heart pro, not problem, but, but a heart conviction... And to do this is to draw them away from Jesus. Well, That's also a thing. And you guys are supposed to be one in Christ. So then you, you guys who eat this kind of meat, you need to figure out your practices in a way that we can all live in unity together. Now Paul, I, I, as you look at that, I'm not going to read the passage, but you will see language of the weaker brother there. I don't want us to read um, a value judgment too much into that and say those of you who you know, are, are pro-preferred p- pronoun are stronger or weaker um, anti-preferred pronoun, I don't want to draw those distinctions, but, but I do believe this, that those who do use preferred pronouns need to figure out ways of being in community with those who do not. Those who do not need to think the best of Christian brothers and sisters who do and not immediately jump to you are you know, bringing shame to the name of Jesus. So a case study. How this looks in real time and then we'll go. In IDX, Which is the youth ministry here at InTown. We have um, actually experienced amazing growth over the last couple of years. We have over 120 students who meet on Sunday nights that will begin again here after school starts back um, in a month or so. And it's a wonderful group of people. It's also a very eclectic group of people. Many come from places that are not a part of this church. Um, Many, you know, are, are your kids, but the only time they come is to Sunday night. God's doing a lot of things, including bringing trans and LGBTQ individuals into our midst. And we talked about that a little bit last week. How do our volunteers deal with this question? Some of our volunteers are comfortable using preferred pronouns and others were not are not i think the one complicating factor in 1 corinthians 8 versus this conversation we're having is that paul never addresses the question of what the meat sellers think about this it's just not a question he's asking so i'm not faulting paul for this but I'm not just imagining a two-way meal between a preferred pronoun person and a non-preferred pronoun person, a preferred okay-with-idle-meat person and a horrified-at-idle-meat person. I'm imagining a three-way dinner between two of them and the, maybe the person who actually brought the meat who's not a believer. And suddenly the conversation is a little bit muddied. It's a little bit It's a little bit more tense. I think that often is more so what we're dealing with, with this question of pronouns. It's not just a hypothetical question that we talk about in here, and then we go express it privately in our individual lives. It's a real question between Christians who disagree and others as well. So the challenge for us at IDX has been how, how do we deal with real students? Real people made in the image of God, and differing volunteers who differ on the question. And this is the advice that I've given our volunteers. For those of you who do not feel that preferred pronouns are appropriate or okay for a Christian, use names. We don't use names enough in our society anyway. And, and I'm I'm huge on this. Uh, I uh, have been guilty in my life of very much over nicknaming people um, or shortening names. It, it's just something I've done my whole life, and um, you know I've had to very much you know fight the urge to call Trisha Egan Trish, lest she kill me. Um, you know, um, I someday ask them about Jim and uh, Jim and Patricia was it or Jim and Trish. Jim and Trish. Ask them about Jim and Trish sometime. Um, But names have a dignity. Many trans individuals who adopt new names when they have some form of transition actually sometimes pick odd-gendered or non-binary names anyway. And so this can be a way within your conscience. I, I'm not trying to weasel something out, right? But, but we're talking about real people and real things. The second thing I do give a lot of people this advice is use the sloppy third person. I'm sorry for those of you who love grammar deeply. Um, but we live in the South. Come on. I mean, we use this all the time. When I talk about, you know, you know Pat Freeman back there doing something, you know, I'm going to say... Yeah, you know, I ran into Pat, and it was awesome, and man, their car is awesome. <laughs> I don't even remember what Pat and Jenny drive, but, but the, the, the them, just the throwing, you know, the, those things. We do that all the time, speaking about singular things or singular people. And that can be an okay practice, too. We're just not putting the emphasis itself on even the existence of The pronoun, much less the accurate use of it or the meaning for it. And thirdly, have a conversation. If you have a deep relationship with someone, you might be able to have a conversation that says, "Look, I I can't, I can't do this. I can't make this, but I love you. You know, can we get not past as to say it doesn't matter, but can we both hold intention the broken part of our relationship that is going to?" that that has brought strife between us? And can we still be friends? And, And can perhaps even the trans person, can you help me think of some other ways of talking to you if I can't do this? Sometimes with relational capital, love, caring, the grace of Jesus, that will be possible. I'll end with this. The other reason why I say, why are we asking this question, and I want us to be very careful in how we're asking the question of, is trans a sin or not? And then this, you know, kind of side question, practical implication of pronouns, is because of this. One's gender or one's sex or one's presentation of one's gender or sex is not what gets someone into the kingdom of God. If a youth comes to me and we are in a relationship, I'm talking about Jesus with them and I'm preaching the gospel and I'm talking about a life lived in light of the kingdom of God and this is, is who we are and what we do. I want that person to love Jesus and for Jesus to transform their heart. And when I say I want that person to love Jesus and for Jesus to transform their heart, the first thing I am putting on the transform heart list is not a gender transplant. And there's a lot of things that are wrong with me that actually are a lot deeper than that. That I need Jesus for. And as a result of that I do wonder and again I have not told you my preference as to this question and I'm not going to here I'd love to talk to you about it privately but whatever we choose as a church or as individuals the reason we bring up this question with individuals who are trans needs to not be how dare you? How could you? I need to fix you. I need an explanation for this prior to a relationship, a conversation about Jesus, a lifetime of relationships, a lifetime of conversations about Jesus. When we bring this question up, it needs to be the way, it needs to be like Zacchaeus and the question of Zacchaeus I love Zacchaeus I've mentioned this before but Zacchaeus was a mobster he was a traitor you know we think of him because of the cute little wee little man song but like this is not the the case this is the punk that you were afraid of down the road that you grew up with it's the house your mom told you never ride by alone at night Jesus picks that guy to go home with? Yes, we see Zacchaeus have this wonderful, amazing conversion. But it is after hours of mealtime. A Jewish meal, like the one described there, would have been hours and hours long. Laying down, basically, on cushions in very close proximity, perhaps with entertainment, maybe with certain kinds of food, Lots of things that the religious elite of his day did not agree with. I mean, Jesus was known sometimes as a glutton and as a drunkard because of this. Scripture doesn't record any questions Jesus asked of Zacchaeus. And so we don't know how much of their conversation had to do with his practices or not. Before, he just has this incredible transformation where he confesses his sin and his brokenness and desires deeply to to love his community well as a new expression of that. But I at least know this. Perhaps scripture does not recount that. But scripture clearly does not record any harsh words to Zacchaeus in the way that Jesus delivers incredibly harsh words to those who judged him about such meals. He called them brutal vipers, and he called them whitewashed tombs, hypocrites. We need to put in focus, with respect to the lens of divinity, what matters. And what matters is the glory of God in the world. Does that mean there are times that the Christian church as a whole need to take a stand on gendered issues. Yes. But we will have to do so with the very same grace and tact that Jesus did. Will there be times that we and individuals because of our stances on the sinfulness of perhaps actions related to gender incongruence or gender dysphoria, yes. And at the same time, if we lose those relationships, may they be with incredible tears and longing, not a, I'm right and you're wrong, and good, see you later, peace out, drop the mic. And again, I've said this before, I think we can be a church that does that as well. 1030 we're going to go ahead and dismiss for worship you guys can talk some more i literally had to kick some of you out at like 1043 that's okay just go worship jesus come ask me questions i did this week put my email on there because i think some of you um, might have questions that you're still holding back and i would love to engage with you about that next week we're going to talk about the final lens which is this idea of disability And what I mean by that, because I realize that word itself might be um, controversial to some, triggering to others, whether the question is sin or not, people who experience gender dysphoria or gender incongruence are often hurting and suffering, and a ton of research that has no connection to Christians at all bears that out. So we need to think about, as Christians, how we respond and enter into that. Let's pray and go to worship. Jesus, thank you so much again for the honor of of having these conversations with my brothers and sisters. May you continue to work on my heart. That I would be both... I'd be bold and humble. And everyone in this room would be the same, that we would seek our unity together, our unity not out of a sense of lukewarmness as to certain positions or stances, but unity and glory in the way we talk about such things, in the way we sacrifice our own opinions or our own practices for others because we want to be a people of sacrifice. We want to be a people Of humility, we want to be a people who holds everyone else around us, especially our brothers and sisters, as more important than ourselves. And you, most of all, because you did that for us. Help us to go into worship with that sense of unity, knowing that the thing that binds us together is not our opinion about an ethical or political issue. Our practical stance about that or its related issues, but the blood of Jesus. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture and Christianity. Intown Community Church is located in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find out more information about our church on our website, intown.org. If you would like more information, please contact us at askintown at intown.org.